If you have your copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn in them to the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter two. Uh, if you need a little reference point for where to locate Ecclesiastes, you can pretty much just open your Bible uh, to the middle and it's right after Proverbs, right after Proverbs. So uh, our passage tonight is Ecclesiastes chapter two. We'll be studying verses one to 11. So I'll go ahead and read our section of scripture and then we will pray for the Lord's help. Ecclesiastes two, beginning in verse one, this is the word of God. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold in the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. Verse nine. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Let's pray. Lord, you tell us that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word won't. Lord, it is sure and true. It is a firm foundation. And even when passages like the one we've just read shake us to the core, it's so that we can be built up, that you break and tear us down so that we might not squander our lives but that we might bank ourselves upon the solid rock, that we might look to you, our creator, for wisdom, to marvel at your glory, to see your beauty through the pages of scripture and be so enthralled and captivated that it would then be our reflex to follow after you, to entrust ourselves to you, to place our faith, hope, and joy in Jesus. And so use your word, Lord, to wound that you might then heal us, that you might show us where true pleasure lies. Teach us now, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if I were to ask you, who has it all? Who has it all? What face emerges? What name crosses your mind? Maybe Taylor Swift's and her legion of Swifties and how she has the ability to generate $2 billion by going on tour. 
Maybe it's Bill Gates, you know, his influence through his nonprofit foundation, his deep pockets from his successful company, a business called Microsoft. Maybe Margot Robbie with her stunning beauty, award nominations and ever increasing blockbuster roles. Now let's say, just for kicks, you could even pick and choose different aspects, different parts from people's lives to mash them together for an ultimate success story. So you would take and combine the entrepreneurial spirit of Elon Musk, the tennis career of Serena Williams, the culinary chops of Gordon Ramsay, the good looks of Alan Tsai, and it would seem, I don't know why you're laughing, it would seem like you almost have the perfect person, or at least someone who arguably had it all. Now there are a number of people who could fit that bill, and certainly Tom Brady qualifies as one of them. He is arguably one of, if not the best quarterbacks to ever play the game, He's a seven-time Super Bowl champion, winning the MVP honors five times. And Brady has not only had success on the field, but off the field as well. He's dated beautiful actresses, been married to a runway model in Giselle Bündchen. He's swimming in money from endorsements, football contracts, and the investments he's made. He started his own company. For all intents and purposes, by the world standard, he has it all. And yet, in a 60-minute interview, listen to what Brady shared. This was back in 2005, in the middle of his career, so not even at his peak. He told the interviewer this, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's gotta be more than this. I mean, this isn't it. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be, end quote. And Brady would go on to win more Super Bowls and accolades. He retired and even came out of retirement to win one more championship before finally hanging up his cleats, at least for now. But as remarkable as that all is, as stellar as his resume and achievements, there's something disturbing too, something haunting about his words. If you stop to give them consideration, to really think about it, Because if satisfaction escapes Brady and everyone else who sits at the top, what hope is there for those of us below? What shot do we have at finding meaning, fulfillment in life? How will we ever be happy? Well, tonight the preacher addresses this question by studying and pursuing pleasure. Pleasure. Now, if you've been with us, you need to remember that Ecclesiastes is a message. The preacher unpacks his proposition, the thesis to his whole book, the text of his sermon, if you will, back in chapter one. 
Ecclesiastes 1, verses 2 to 3. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Life is hevel, a vapor, this very vivid word picture. It's fleeting, frustrating, futile. Trying to control and comprehend life is as impossible as grasping smoke, as getting a handle on mist. And if this is true, if this is the case, then how are we to live? If life is brief, unpredictable, if death is inevitable, what gain, says the preacher, what benefit reward can we secure or show that warrants our time and effort? What's worthy of all of our blood, sweat, and tears? Last week, the preacher sets out to explore his options. In his quest for meaning, he first turns to wisdom. But in Ecclesiastes 1, 12 to 18, we saw that knowledge, brilliance, ingenuity, education, all our wisdom can't sustain and satisfy our longing for significance. So tonight, the preacher shifts gears and he thinks if the mind can't provide permanence, can't provide purpose, what about the body? If wisdom can't satisfy, maybe the flesh can. Maybe pleasure is what life is all about. The preacher pivots in our passage to pursue this, which is our first main heading if you're taking notes and following the bulletin, the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure. And this is the longest one, so stay with me. Look again at verse one. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Now, before we get going, we need to understand a few things. Pleasure is not inherently wrong. You know, it probably gets a bad rep, especially in the church, because we associate it with carnal things. But really, pleasure is neutral. Pleasure is neutral. It's what we take pleasure in that moves the needle. You know, it's good to take pleasure in helping others. It's probably bad to take pleasure in pushing over little toddlers. See the difference? Here's another way to think about it. What the preacher is addressing is the actual experience, the, the endorphins. He's referring to what feels good, what makes you happy, put simply, enjoyment. You probably heard of this quote from Blaise Pascal. He writes, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. That's provocative, but true because this is how we all operate. That our process for making decisions is tied to what we think will make us happiest. It's why we lie sometimes to avoid the uncomfortable consequences of telling the truth. It's why we have food preferences or like a certain genre 
for our books, our movies. It's why someone would even commit suicide because they believe it is a better choice than the rest of the alternatives. So here, the preacher embarks on an adventure and he announces, if it feels good, I'm gonna do it. Now, he's not exactly letting loose like a maniac, you know, just deranged and brutish in his pursuit. This is a controlled experiment, a test, as he calls it in verse one. The preacher is methodical. I mean, he sounds like a scientist talking out loud, scribbling in his notebook, that with wisdom, with every faculty and resource he has at his disposal, he will pursue pleasure to the max. And in verses two to eight, It's as if the preacher enters his laboratory to analyze all that the world has to offer. But before we are enticed and get too excited, he provides the results of his experiment up front. Behold, this also was vanity. And we see this verse as he pursues pleasure in laughter pleasure in laughter. Now, a quick note, each pursuit mentioned comes with its own caution tape, a lesson to glean, and it's not specific to just that particular pleasure. There's a lot of overlap. You could essentially attach the same warning label to all of them, but for each pleasure, I'm narrowing in on one primary warning, one primary lesson. Does that make sense? Okay, back on track with laughter, as he pursues pleasure and laughter, we're also taught to beware of distraction. Okay, that's a mouthful. Let's look again at verse two. He says, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? So we all know comedy shows and comedy films, they're amusing. It can bring a smile to our face. It's fun to be around funny people. But we also need to recognize how momentary a good laugh is, right? I mean, what's the funniest thing you've ever heard in your entire life? When was the last time you laughed so hard you were on the verge of crying? And you know it's happened. It was great, but it can be hard to recall, right? To remember and share with your neighbor. You know, it's probably something I said, but uh, you forget, I forget, or we eventually do. You see, no funny situation or joke keeps you rolling and reeling, no matter how hilarious it is. The pleasure fades soon after the punchline is given. And the irony is comedians, comedians who make a living off of laughter are sometimes, by their own confession, the most depressed people in the room. And Chris Farley, a mainstay on SNL, went on a four-day bender, fresh out of detox, only to overdose and die at the age of 33. Robin Williams, widely recognized as one of the greatest comedians of our time, shocked the world when he took his own life suddenly. Bob Odenkirk had this to comment about the industry. He said, all people are sad clowns. That's the key to comedy. And listen to this, that's the key to comedy. It's a buffer against reality. 
Let that sink in. Of course, laughter is good. But we know all too well humor can be a cloak for our hurt. And that's precisely the danger of finding too much pleasure in comedic relief. It relieves us from reality so that we're distracted and we don't have to deal with the heavy and hard things like broken relationships, overwhelming responsibilities in school shootings. We want some levity to lighten the mood. And look, it's appropriate, but it can't last forever. It may work for a while, but one day, you and I will have to face the music. Because guess what? Life and death, they are not laughing matters. What it boils down to is distraction through entertainment. And really pick your poison. Like I mentioned earlier, a lot of our pursuits could fit here. A lot of our pursuits for pleasure is a chasing after a, a high or a quick pick-me-up to shield and numb us from the harsher sides of life. It could be laughing our heads off, living for the weekends, watching YouTube shorts, or medicating yourself with drugs and alcohol, which is where the preacher looks to next. If laughter won't do it, how about drink? the preacher picks up a bottle of wine in verse three. We continue on. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Now, alcohol is not automatically sinful. You know, I will confess, I drink sometimes Water, that is, because I'm a Christian. Just kidding. I am a Christian. Uh, that's not the part I'm kidding about. <laughs> but the Bible tells us that drinking itself is not a sin. In fact, the preacher will later on mention how wine can gladden the heart. What the scriptures prohibit is drunkenness. So here, the preacher's not getting hammered and pounding shot glasses. And that little phrase clues us in on this. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. He's telling us he's lucid. He's careful. Remember, he is testing alcohol as a scientist. He's handling his liquor responsibly with restraint. But it's paradoxical that though guided by wisdom, it still ends in folly. That's the definition of insanity. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and yet expecting different results. Though the preacher orders a glass of red wine followed by a glass of white, followed by another of a different varietal, he's left in the same place, in the same state, as dry and empty as the bottom of the bottle. You see, this is a corrective for us because we know, we know getting wasted is a waste. Throbbing hangover, driving under the influence, saying something stupid that you'll regret the day after. We've heard stories, tragedies of the alcoholic who's fired for showing up inebriated, the marriage that's wrecked and ruined. Getting buzzed and slurred words is the epitome of squandering the few days of our life. 
but we wrongly conclude that the problem is excess, parting too hard and going overboard. We think, okay, the cure then is just to chill a little, you know, scale back a bit, exercise some self-control. You know, the key to pleasure is moderation. Moderation in everything. Be a connoisseur. Take it slow, swirl and sip the wine. Don't get plastered so you can appreciate it. Then you'll be satisfied. But that's exactly what the preacher said he did. And that's why exactly the preacher declares to still be foolish. So then what are we supposed to learn? What insight are we to walk away with? We get that the secret to satisfaction is not in intoxication. And the preacher's teaching us, it's also not in moderation as well. Now, is it better than being inebriated? Sure. But whether you gulp or sip, there's only so many drops in a glass. Where the lesson of laughter is warning against doling our senses with too much pleasure, the lesson of drink is kind of like the opposite a warning that even a balanced pursuit of pleasure will not yield ultimate satisfaction. Of course, being greedy or glutton is bad, but a middle of the road approach doesn't guarantee lasting pleasure either. Even if you're modest in how you cheer your body with drink, food, health, fun, relationships, you, can, you still cannot avoid the same end the same limitations and vanity and frustrations of life as someone who's drunk. Okay, if it's not laughing it up or fine wine, where do we go? Perhaps there's satisfaction, satisfaction in creativity. You know, go out and do something. Look at verse four. The preacher continues, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. We'll stop there. And most of us have or currently live in a house. And someday we would like to own one, although that's becoming increasingly difficult in LA. The preacher, Solomon, he shows us his real estate portfolio. He has built his dream home, his forever home, new construction, top of the line appliances, interior designed with the best finishes. He's an innovative architect, overseeing not only construction of his house, but did you see it? The text says he built houses, plural. I mean, in these verses, everything is in the plural landscaping the grounds with the vineyards, probably how he sourced and experimented with wines. He's developed multiple botanical gardens to stroll through, plenty of orchards to pick fruit from. He doesn't just have pools for swimming. He has pools built for his arboretums, an irrigation system to water every shrub, tree, every blade of grass. Don't you want to see and check out this guy's house? The kind of paradise He's created. In fact, the Hebrew word for parks is pardes, where we derive the word paradise. You get what's going on here? 
the preacher has attempted to create his own personal eating for his own personal enjoyment. Many of these words and descriptions are lifted from Genesis 1 and 2 when we read about the garden. But in this sin-cursed world, no amount of creativity can lead us back to paradise. We cannot recover paradise once it's been lost. And we need to recognize the futility of seeking pleasure in creativity. You know what we call placing all our hope, all our joy, all our satisfaction in creation? We call that idolatry. Whether good or bad, we commit idolatry every time when we exchange the creator for creation, for our own creation. So be careful. Be careful of placing too much stock in what you've built, what you've done, of placing your identity in your job title, your LinkedIn page, and whatever cutting edge technology you're working on. Be careful of being consumed with carving out an ideal community, an important role for yourself in the church. Be careful of replacing God by playing God, of crafting your version of Eden with prestigious degrees, fast cars, fancy clothes, interesting hobbies, and a cool image. Nothing you create can remove the limits of your own mortality. In one last ditch effort, the preacher tests possession, wealth, and sex. And you could separate each of these into their own little experiment, but we'll package them together because they're all undergirded by the same desire. They're often pursued selfishly to stroke our egos for the sake of pride. The preacher says in verse seven, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. Now, the preacher isn't commenting on the morality of owning slaves. First, this is very different than the slavery that mars our nation's history. Second, the preacher is merely providing an example, highlighting the extent of his power. You think pleasure and satisfaction comes from being on the top of the pyramid? Well, the preacher was the CEO of his generation. Needing so many employees, his servants gave birth to more servants. That's wild, right? Being born into this world as a baby with a job already assigned to you. This level of power can go straight to our heads. I mean, if Christian existed, our ministry associate, if Christian existed solely to fetch my coffee, to give me massages and feed me grapes, it'd be weird, yes, but it'd also be a little nice as well. You know, I would feel like the man. And the preacher continues to provide and sustain such a large staff requires a large possession of what food of herds and flocks. 
Today, companies, really good, booming companies, have their own cafeteria. But what workplace has their own farm dedicated to feeding their employees? Solomon, the preacher, does. Verse 8 mentions musicians. You've heard of nannies, maids, personal chefs, chauffeurs, and trainers. How about the capability to send Beyonce a text and she shows up to sing a few songs for you after dinner? Picture BTS or Coldplay or whoever you want just lounging out in the pool house because they need to be ready to perform at your very beckoning. I mean, it's fascinating to dream of, right? That kind of power. It'd be like if I clap my hands and Viet emerged from the bushes to play me a song on the piano. I'm not gonna lie, it would be pretty sweet. I would clap my hands only to send him away before he started, and then clap my hands again to bring him back. The preacher here possesses it all. Money, we wanna talk about money? The preacher Solomon, he made silver irrelevant because he had so much gold. That's how rich he was. Coins and spare change don't matter when you have billions, right? And we haven't even considered his vault of precious jewels and rare treasures. You add it all together, the preacher's net worth reaches a staggering figure where the number doesn't even register in our minds because we can't fathom that kind of wealth. Lastly, perhaps the apex of pleasure for many is sex, or to paraphrase the preacher, it is the consummate delight of mankind. And the preacher says he had many concubines, which we know is an understatement because elsewhere in scriptures, the Bible tells us Solomon had hundreds of women for any sexual exploit he desired in bed. And treating women in such an objectifying way is deplorable. It's disgusting, but I bet it also feels empowering. It must have fed his pride, reinforcing his status in society, that these women want him or exist to please him. Possession, wealth, sex, there was no fantasy for the preacher because he made everything a reality. He took great pride. He was unrivaled in power. The only thing he lacked was the power to be satisfied. And that is a caution for us, a stern warning. Whatever we boast in, whatever power we possess, it will not fulfill us. Ironically, pride is actually what makes us small. It renders us insecure, enslaved to finding our worth in the service and praise of others, needing more designer clothes, bags, shoes, and a huge bank account to assure us we're the toast of the town. The hunger for power is a terrible master that brings more pain than pleasure. You don't have to go far, just survey your own experience, your own life. You felt this. Does your demeanor depend on what people think about or do for you? That when everyone is fawning over you, you're walking on clouds. But as soon as you feel slighted, you're immediately grumpy. Or how about finances? 
if the economy is bursting, you're beaming because it means you are just one step closer to making it, to being rich. But when the stock market tanks and bleeds red, you worry because you have less, what? Purchasing power. People might think you're poor or sex. You might not have hundreds of partners like Solomon, but your harem waits for you online. Your concubines are digital. Now with a mighty click of a button, you can give in to the flesh, but if you're honest, do you feel all right? Do you feel better and whole after? You see, power and pride are twin towers that promise pleasure and satisfaction, but in the end, they always under deliver. So where does this leave the preacher and his picture perfect life? The cracks are completely exposed when we take a closer look. Our second heading, the problem of pleasure, the problem of pleasure. Verse nine, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure from my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. This sounds like the American dream, right? The preacher's face would be on the cover of Forbes magazine. His house would be featured on HGTV. All the celebrities and the who's who would attend his parties. His entourage would consist of servants and supermodels, and it entices us. It appeals to us because isn't this our game plan for life? Yes, maybe the amount and the details aren't identical, but the blueprint is pretty much the same. Have a good laugh, have a good time, happy hours and fine dining, promotion, working up the ladder, success in our careers, dating, romantic relationship, possessing a seven-figure house to match our seven-figure stock portfolio, fame, wealth. These are the comforts we chase. Can't you read yourself into this passage? I know I can. King Allen says in verse three, I search with my heart how to cheer my body with pleasure. What about you? What kind of pursuits are reflected in your Google search? In the apps you open first thing in the morning? What's on your Amazon wish list? What's penciled into your calendar or your five-year plan? What are you turning and looking to for satisfaction and pleasure in life? And can you be as raw and honest as the preacher? Because he doesn't deny that pleasure can be found. He says it was the fruit of his labor. He toiled and was rewarded for his diligence. He was able to grab on to pleasure. But here's the dilemma. Like vapor, it still slips through his fingers. It was genuinely fun, but ultimately boring. And guess what? Death is still knocking at the door. The preacher went hard to the extreme, pursuing pleasure as much as humanly possible. We think satisfaction escapes us because we can't get enough. The preacher has reached the other side only to bemoan everything is not everything. 
Verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all of it was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. However you might shape your sandcastle, it will crumble in the end. It will leave you wanting. When asked the question, how much money is enough? John D. Rockefeller, America's first billionaire replied, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. And companies, our society have, and companies have built their entire business model around our insatiable craving for more. Advertisers are always selling us on the next best gadget. After getting the iPhone, iPad, MacBook Pro, AirPods, the only thing you lack to finally complete your life is what? The Apple Watch. Once you have that, you'll be content. Airbnb preaches a cramped hotel room. It just won't cut it. You need more space to properly enjoy a vacation. Book a flight with Southwest. Get away from the mundane to explore a new city. Instagram, TikTok, they teach you to keep scrolling and swiping so you don't miss out on the latest trend or viral video. But listen, no pleasure, no product can quench our search for meaning. You see, given enough time, we as human beings, we are confronted with two obstacles we cannot overcome. One, our pleasures don't last. And two, neither do we. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, the dopamine rush runs out or we die. Every park needs to be renovated. Every mansion remodeled. Singers fall off the billboard charts. Supermodels grow gray and old. Influencers lose their influence. It was Mick Jagger who belted it out from the top of his lungs. I can't get no satisfaction, though I try and try and try. And that, my friends, is just vanity of vanities put to music. It's ultimately a striving after the wind. This is pretty depressing, right? Grim and morose. So then what's the point? Do we just hang our heads? The preacher is preaching. Do we have ears to hear and eyes to see the true purpose of pleasure. Our last heading, the purpose of pleasure. Now we're gonna cheat a little by jumping ahead, but the reason I do this is because the preacher draws the same conclusion for pleasure this week as he will for work next week. And so we'll fast forward to verse 24. Just a snippet. He says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil seems to contradict all that he has unpacked in our passage. But here's the difference maker. This also I saw is from the hand of God. God comes into the picture. You see, before we often seek after pleasure like it's some commodity we're supposed to collect and amass more of, but handle it that way and we'll only be frustrated, disappointed because pleasure under the sun is just like life under the sun. It's fickle, it's fleeting. It can disappear in a blink of an eye. Life 
is not a rat race to see who dies with the most toys. It's not some video game where the aim is to accumulate more stuff and pleasure as you can. And yet often, don't we busy ourselves with this kind of playing, this kind of strategy? It's like someone who plans all that they're gonna do on vacation in Paris. And so they pack out their itinerary, moving from one place to another, restaurant to museum with no second to spare, that they miss the entire point. Instead of relaxing and enjoying, they are rushing and stressing. And by the end of the trip, they have gone through the motions, but never savored the moment. And that's just like us, but to life. We can be so obsessed with life hacking and winning that we forget to enjoy. Life is not about what you can collect and gain. It is a gift from God to be received to relish. You see, the solution isn't to throw caution into the wind and plunge in and indulge like a hedonist. Nor is it to abstain and run away from everything, to withdraw from the world like a monk. It's not about ensuring that we don't veer too far to the right or to the left, but allowing the gifts of life to launch us above. The pleasures we experience under the sun is designed to catapult your heart beyond the sun, from the gift back to the giver. That was the preacher's mistake in our passage. He was consumed with self, self-gratification. The phrase for myself occurs eight times in just nine verses. The focus has been on what he can get, what he can gain on acquiring more to please his selfish heart. But in so doing, he failed to see, to see the hand of God and to behold God himself. And the question peering back at us is have you, have you? You know, praise God for a witty joke, a delicious meal, architecture and the arts, sightseeing and hanging out with friends, a spacious home or a windfall of money. But that is the thing. Do you praise him? Are you cognizant of God? Do you connect the dots and recognize that the source of every good gift comes down to you from the father of lights, as James tells us. That whatever your lot, whatever cards you've been dealt, you can still rejoice. You can enjoy because it is tailored and hand-delivered by him. In our passage, the preacher is not putting an end to pleasure. He's only telling us pleasure is not the end. See that? The joy we experience in this lifetime is a preview, is a trailer for the next. Or think of appetizers. I like eating, so my illustrations deal with food. But you have the arugula salad and truffle garlic bread. They are served to whet your appetite, not satiate. They are to complement and get you ready for the entree. They tell you that something, is, something better is coming. But you know how you ruin dinner? You stuff yourself on salad. 
You ask for another plate of bread, and when the main dish is placed in front of you, no wonder you're not interested. Or you leave beforehand feeling ripped off because you think all you got for dinner was salad and bread. What has happened? In both of those scenarios, you've never received what's been prepared for you. To quote C.S. Lewis again, because I'm pretty sure Ecclesiastes would be his favorite book in the Bible. He writes this in The Weight of Glory. I'm sure you've heard this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too far easily pleased. Practice every earthly pleasure is a whisper of an eternal one. Every little gift we enjoy in this life is an appetizer to help us appreciate the greatest gift God could ever lavish upon us, namely himself. This is the gospel, right? We hear that God created us in his image. Why? Not to be domineering, not because he had no purpose. No, he created us to be in fellowship with him, to find our joy, happiness, pleasure, and purpose in him. But we've turned away. We've rebelled. And we have said, no, 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 no. I know how to get happiness out of life. We've sinned and left to ourselves. We're frustrated, enslaved, to our own vices and destined for hell. And so God in his love and wisdom sends his son to pursue us, to reconcile us, to bring us back to the one we were made for. That on the cross, Jesus living a perfect holy life, he can bear our punishment, take on our sin and die for us. That if we would repent and believe, we wouldn't just get to live forever, we would have eternal life as the scriptures de define, to know him as one true God and Christ, his son, who he, has, who he has sent. You see, the shadow that death cast is swallowed up in Christ. And when you come to Jesus, he changes you. He transforms life. He gives you new spectacles to see everything. He ushers in a new dawn, a new day. And in Ecclesiastes 2, the preacher is scattering breadcrumbs. He will eventually lead us there in chapter 12. But first, he allows us to flounder, to struggle, to be bothered and exasperated so that when everything else fails us, pleasure included, the stage is set. Vanity of vanities is the bleak backdrop on which God shines the brightest. There is a huge difference between the object of our pleasure and the objective of our pleasure. As someone once said, he who has God in everything has nothing more than he who has God alone. And that's the perspective 
of a Christian. That's the point. That's the purpose of pleasure. This giant paradigm shift from being so absorbed with what's in front of us to now seeing through it. And like a telescope to marvel at the glory and goodness of our creator, of God himself. Let's pray. God, what a sobering reality that often we squander our days, not because our desires are too strong, but they are too weak. We have preoccupied ourselves with lesser things, things that are not worthy of our attention, our affection, and so raise our gaze to you, that even the gifts you bestow upon us would be platforms that we might see you to get a better view of you and your wisdom, your kindness, your glory, your love as mightily expressed in the cross. Lord, your word tells us you have made known the path of life, that it's in your presence, there's fullness of joy and at your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. God, work this into our hearts that we would not only know it, but believe it, and in believing it, we will live it out. We thank you for your word and our time. In Jesus' name, amen.